Good morning to each of you, and greetings in the name of Jesus, our Savior. It is again a, a great privilege to stand here and to look out into your faces. Brothers and sisters that have committed themselves to the Lord are endeavoring to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. As I stand here before you, I sense my own neediness. Who am I to be a servant of God? How faithful am I as his servant? I have preached numerous times the importance of immersing ourselves in the word. And Ellis prayed, forgive us where we come short, and I come so short. And I confess that to you this morning. My mind went a lot of ways as I pondered what the Lord would have me to share this morning. There's so much scripture. There's so much truth. What do you need? What do you need? What do I need? I found it very interesting, the songs that we sang in the opening, number eight. It talked about this whole congregation has knowledge of sin. And I think that is referring to recognizing our own need, our own sinfulness. And we come together because we know that God has the antidote for that sin. God has the provision made. And it's a, it's a beautiful song, and I really appreciated that we could sing it together here this morning. And it's through faith in the Savior. We've all broken the law. We've all rejected. God still leads us gently. And in the song we, we just sang, 53, I found it an interesting picture here. In verse 2, it says, Thou too hail the light returning, ready burning be the incense of thy powers. And I found that interesting in relation to what I plan to preach this morning, the idea of the incense, the incense, something offered up to God. For a, a title perhaps could be sin and the superiority of the Savior. What I'm going to, to preach this morning is nothing new. But Peter says several times that he is going to put his readers in remembrance because you know these things, but we need to be reminded again. And I've heard that some preachers tell you what they're going to say and then say it and then tell you what they said. Others don't. They just say it and expect you to listen. But I have kind of six goals, perhaps, um, as we go through these scriptures and I will tell you what they are, and you can consider them. Number one is to recognize our separation from God because of sin. Recognize the sin for what it is. Number two is to look briefly at the law and what it required in the sin offering. Number three is to understand that Christ's blood is of overwhelming superiority to the sacrifices of the law in dealing with sin. Fourthly, to be encouraged to claim the promises that are ours in Christ. Fifthly, to be stimulated to commit our lives in loving service to our Lord. And sixthly, to be aware of the consequences of turning away from God. How many of you here believe that all mankind are sinners and will be condemned to death apart from some external provision? Do we believe that? We sang it in that song. We have knowledge of sin. What is sin? That's a huge subject, and I, I need to put more study into sin. What, what is sin? But the Scripture has 
a number of definitions that it gives, and I'd like to look at those here briefly. Proverbs 21, verse 4, and it reminds me of what I preached here several weeks ago, um, the things that God hates. And one of those things was pride. And Proverbs 21, verse 4 says, And high look and a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. A proud heart that lifts itself up is sin. Proverbs 24, 9, the thought of foolishness is sin. And these here each has a little different aspect, and we can't just pull one and, and develop it so much, but taking them all together, and we get a picture of what sin is. Pride, foolishness, Romans 14, 23, the end of the verse says, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. What is not of faith? Unbelief. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin, transgressing the law, not following and keeping the law of God. And in verse chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 17, says, All unrighteousness is sin. In James 4, 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Someone has defined sin as missing the mark. I see sin is that which is contrary to God's character in whatever way that is. You know, here in, in James it says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. If God has a desire for me and a purpose that I know and I omit that, it is sin. The same as doing something that he commands not to. And what is the result of sin? If you care to turn to Genesis chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Was Satan honest here? Did he tell them the truth? Well, they both ate the fruit, and they continued to walk around. That's what we think of as death, is our physical body falling over or being coming still. But you know, there was in that aspect of death as we know it, there was some truth there but it was a partial truth. They were separated from God immediately, and eventually they died physically as well. The scripture gives some very clear results of sin, and many of these we know very well. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And it goes on to say that, you know, a father is not held accountable for his son's sins, nor the son for his father. Each one of us is accountable for our own lives. And that sin results in death. James chapter 1 verse 15 says, well, it talks about temptation leading us to want what is not godly. And lust, it says, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And that's where each one of us is in our natural state, apart from Christ. A sinner 
we cannot fulfill the law of God. We cannot exemplify the character of Christ in a God-honoring way apart from the work of Christ in our lives. But I'd like to look briefly at the law and what it required in the sin offering. Leviticus 16 has this in detail. I'm not sure how much of this to read. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they, had, when they offered before the Lord and died, or they had put strange fire into their censers, and they died. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place, or we would say the holy of holies, within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with a linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and shall put and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock for the sin offering, which is for himself, to make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. And it goes on there, jumping to verse 12. It says, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and in his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. That's that, that incense that he was to take, physical incense there, and to bring it in within the veil. And he should put, shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock, verse 14, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Then he was to bring the goat's blood that he killed and bring it in and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And, it, and he shall make, verse 16, an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgression and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And it goes on continuing in that, but with very detailed instructions. What the animal was to be, how it was to be done, how many times, who was to do it, what they were to wear, how they were to prepare themselves before the high priest once a year for himself and then for others. You know, he had to go in there twice. Is this still happening? Does a high priest still have to go every year? No. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews is one that I know a bit of, but sometimes it gets kind of tedious reading about Melchizedek and how everything. I find it hard to really, I understand the bigger picture, but you know there's tremendous importance in this book, and I forget now exactly where it was we were talking about Jews and Gentiles and the way we look at, at the Scripture and the way we look at the world. And really, we tend to look at the world a little bit more through the eyes of Jews than Gentiles. We understand a lot of the background. And we understand the need of, of the blood there to some degree. And Hebrews is a book, 
helping the Jewish people to see the superiority of Christ and the fulfillment of the law in the person and work of Christ. And here the writer is looking, breaking into the book. He's looking at at the tabernacle. And in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9, he gives a description of of the different articles there. And you had the the holy place and then the holiest of all. And in beginning in verse 6, it starts to describe what the priest did, some of which what we read there, but I'll begin reading verse 6. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle or the first portion there, the holy place, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Mankind did not have open access into the presence of God. That holy of holies, the mercy seat there on top of the Ark of the Covenant was where God said he would dwell. And only one person could go there and only one time a year. And he had to do all the things just right. Verse 9 makes it clear that even though these things were done just right, they did not change the people. They did not make them perfect. They were a covering. It, it took the sin off of, out of their experience, or I guess you could say it, it atoned for. It, it took God's judgment away for those sins, but it did not make them a new creature. They did not give them a clean and a new conscience. Verse 10 says that these things that they did, it says, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of reformation. So I see there's a lot of external things that were to do, that they were to do. It calls them carnal ordinances, fleshly things that they did, they observed. And I don't know if you remember what we talked about an ordinance was back in April at communion, but it was a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. And these were physical things that they did, and they pointed to something that they didn't understand, perhaps, until that time of reformation, it says here. I would not have remembered that that phrase was here, but there was a reformation in, in, their, in, in how this was to be done, and that all happened, was consummated in Christ. In verse 11, it says, but Christ. So here we have the contrast. We have the Old Testament law, the things they were to do. The sacrifices to atone for their sin, it didn't make them perfect. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, or not tangible, not of creation, not something that men could construct, neither by the blood of goats and calves, But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Christ entered the real tabernacle, the real holy of holies. And he didn't enter it with blood from an animal. He took his own blood. And he went before the Father and said, here is my blood to atone for all mankind. The sacrifices and ceremonies of the Old Testament were effective in the purifying of the flesh and that they they covered what was needful. But the blood of Christ purifies 
the conscience. And that, that is referred to in verse 14. We have not read that. Let's go ahead and read verses, verses 13 and 14. For the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh. So that did that, it says. Those things were needful. And if those things did that, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know, under the law, these things had to be done to be acceptable to God. But the blood of Christ not only makes us ceremonially clean, and, and I, as I thought about that, I thought of justification. It was, it was a clean, those people were, were justified before God for what they did. And God looked at them as, you, you are, you're okay. But it didn't change who they were. But this blood of Christ, it says, it cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And that I see a sanctification, that, that remaking of who we are to serve God out of love. And I had to think of the word appeasement versus pleasing. Now, now our, our God, even in the Old Testament, I believe many served God out of, out of love and out of, out of a tr- genuine respect for who he was. And yet, how many do we, do we read about that that just didn't seem to really embrace God for as their as their Lord. They went through the motions, perhaps. Did they really understand? How many of us go through the motions because we know it's needful, but we don't really grasp the superiority of the blood of Christ and what it can do in our lives? Continue reading in verse fifteen. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of his of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. I'm going to go down to verse 20, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. That's what Moses said when he sprinkled the blood. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law, purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Blood was mandatory for purging and cleansing, and without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin, and yet today there is no forgiveness without someone's blood being shed, and we see that that is where Christ's blood comes into our behalf. Verse 23, it was necessary, therefore necessary, that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. I see here he's going back and he's saying, see, the tabernacle was there. Those were the, the shadows. Those were the, that physical demonstration of something that was far beyond. But because blood was needed in heaven before the presence of God there, blood was also needed in the tabernacle so that we could realize the importance of its need. Again, it's contrasting this Spirit with this physical tabernacle with the spiritual holy of holies, the presence of God, and Christ entered in. Verse 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Who does this blood work for? Who does it apply to? The blood is open, offered to anyone. It's shed for the sins of the whole world. But I believe here, It says, and unto them that look for him, we have to take that blood. We have to avail it. We have to put it 
to our hearts. We have to, by faith, accept it as we repent of our sin and see where we are in our standing with God. Continuing in, in chapter 10, it says, verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers unto thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin, or they wouldn't have had sin that needed dealt with if it really purged and changed them. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. And it continues on there with a number of quotations and prophecies of Christ. And, well, God put all these sacrifices in place, didn't he? And sometimes I've, I've had to wonder, what does he mean? You know, the law was very specific. It was very detailed. It was very thorough. And you must do these sacrifices. So what does God mean? I don't want sacrifice. Beginning of verse 16, it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them. Again, a quotation. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And I may have missed something there that, that applies, but as I, as I pondered this, I came to understand it this way. Those sacrifices were needed continually because of continual sin. God doesn't want sacrifice. He wants holiness. He desires us to do his will. And in verse 14, when I, I skipped, it says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So there's that picture of that one sacrifice bringing us into a right relationship with God that doesn't just cover sin, that takes sin away and enables us to do his will. As verse 18 says, Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. When sin is forgiven, no more sacrifice needs to be made for it. And we now carry the blood of the Lamb, as it were. We can take it. It says here in verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So they're saying now we can go into the presence of God, the very presence of God, as we avail, as we take, as it were, as the blood is applied to our lives. We can now enter the presence of God. God, the King, the Creator, if I had to think of, of kings and, and earthly kings and how the power, the what's, what's the right word, but the, they could strike down anyone that came into their court uninvited or that offended. When Queen Esther went before the king, it was a risk she took. She was uninvited. How do you come before God? Do you come groveling and writhing and feeling like you're in the scum of the earth. This verse 19 says that we have boldness. Now this isn't arrogance. God, you demand, you, you, you de I deserve this. You, you need to help me. It's humility. And I would say it's a humble boldness and a confident knowledge because we know that the blood of Christ has availed for us. And let's claim that promise that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. 
but only through the blood of Christ. And never discount the need of the blood applied to the sins in our lives. But what does all this really mean in life? You know, some of these things, justification, uh, these theological terms, and sometimes it's like, what do they all really mean? How do they, how do they affect my life? Well, Romans chapter 5, a verse that, that means a lot to me, and I've shared it here, but being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that's something that isn't, here again, it's not something tangible you can put your hand on, but it's something that's real. Peace with God that we can experience. And that was somewhat referred to in the opening. And, and if you study the life of David, he had a peace with God that was, was founded on his knowledge that when he sinned, he repented. You know, we, we acknowledged all of us earlier that sin results in death. And now we can know that we can be delivered from the sentence of death. But further, that affects our lives. Looking here, continuing in, in chapter 10 of, of Hebrews, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's that peace in our hearts. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, we are no longer tied to those dead works, which it says that that, that earlier sacrifice was not able to cleanse from, but Jesus came to cleanse our conscience from those dead works. But now we don't have to, to, to do all these rituals to appease the Lord. But we are called to do something. Notice the us pronoun that starts here in, in verse 22. It says, let us draw near. Verse 24 or verse 23, it says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Verse 24, let us consider one another. Not only do we love the Lord, but we love each other and we need to encourage one another to live out the character of Christ. Verse 25 says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You know, this isn't just an individual, well, I've applied the blood, I believe, and now I'm all set. But we see here that the body of Christ plays an important role in faithfulness. It struck me some time ago, and I believe I shared it here, but the verse 25 says to not forsake to exhort one another. And verse 26 says four, which I believe relates right back to it. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And here's the sixth area that we wanted to consider, and that is beware of the consequences of turning away from God or back to sin. Now, just because we've accepted and applied the blood doesn't mean that sin is never more of an issue. Back in chapter 9, verse 7, it says as the priest went in to the second portion there of the tabernacle. Verse 7 says, But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The new King James says, Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And the ESV says, and he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You know, I, I didn't study into this. I'm not an authority on it. But it seems that when you committed 
a gross sin. You were caught in adultery. You were caught stealing. You had to bring an offering, something to to atone for that sin. And that this sin offering was more of that general sins, the, the nature, things that you did without thinking about it. Maybe some of those, yeah, the, the unintentional, the, the things in life that we as, as carnal humans can be involved in without specifically planning to. And I see perhaps a parallel in this sacrifice of Christ. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I I believe that as we come and accept the provisions of Christ's blood, as we are born again, as we are adopted, as we have repented and are converted, that that blood applies to our hearts and our lives. And as long as we live in good conscience before God and and are sensitive to His Spirit's leading, as we see areas in our life that we fall short, those errors, and we repent and live in that continual Repentant attitude, that blood applies. But if I choose and I willfully make a decision to go against what I know God would have me to do in one of the specific or here again, what is sin, but something I know. It says here in verse 26, if we sin willfully, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. And I believe that's saying that that sacrifice no longer will cover me if I live unrepentantly in that sin. Is the blood of Christ still there? Yes. But there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful looking, verse 27, for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that saith, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he goes on to say, Cast not away therefore your confidence. Hang in there. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. God's mercy and God's grace are tremendous, and they're extended to all. But God cannot tolerate sin. So, Wherever we are in life and as we experience life, we can rest in the blood of Christ. But we also must not become complacent. We need to be aware of the Spirit's working. And you know, I don't think this is somewhere where we just find ourselves one morning. Oh, I'm damned. I think it's choices that we make. And I believe God continues to call us back. And I think this idea of counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing, that's a that's a lack of repentance because God continues to draw and you see over and over the call of God to repent and come back. And when there's repentance, the blood is applied again. There must be repentance. So in our daily lives, we come back to verses 24 and 25 as the challenge that I leave with us. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Let's encourage each other to to follow the Lord faithfully 
to live lives that are above reproach, that are pleasing to him, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This will help us to live lives that are not prone to willful sin. And we can apply this blood to our hearts. and We can be faithful to God. We can bring him glory and be the light that the world needs to see.